Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, and we are on episode number 283. Today's topic is commercial feedlots or concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. So we're going to talk about CAFOs as if they are a problem, because they are, but first of all, what's Hart's solution? So Hart's solution is to eliminate half of all economic activity, including commercial feedlots. Most of our economic activity is not helpful for actual people. There is so much of what occurs that is called economic activity, but is really highly uneconomical and is bad for people in the present day, not to mention people in future generations who will have to inherit the world that we give them. So half of all economic activity should be eliminated, including uh, what's called defense should be eliminated or reduced by 90%. What uh, the uh, manufacture of automobiles, planes, and helicopters should be reduced by 90%. I mean, why are we continuing to churn out all these cars? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change gives us about 10 years to seriously reduce our carbon output. Why are we continuing to make more and more and more cars? Why are we continuing to drill more and more and more oil wells? Why are we continuing to frack more and more and more? That's hydraulic fracturing. Why are we continuing the construction of new buildings, new roads, new pipelines? We're just locking ourselves in to decades of fossil fuel-oriented economic activity. So I've just named several things, and it's hardly a complete list, of things that could and should be eliminated or reduced by 90%. And another one of those things that should be eliminated or reduced by 90% is concentrated animal feeding operations. That's these big, huge feedlots and a CAFO is defined as an animal feeding operation with more than 1,000 animal units. And an, an, a thousand, an animal unit is defined as uh, something that weighs 1,000 pounds. So an animal unit can be 700 dairy cows or 2,500 swine or 125,000 broiler chickens or 82,000 laying hens. So these are big operations. 700 dairy cows is a big operation. So that's what's a, you know, so a concentrated animal feeding operation is a big, large, huge operation. Now the main thing to note about these big operations is that it need not be this way. We can raise meat sustainably, but it has to be in a much smaller operation. If you want to know more about that, I would look up Joel Salatin, S-A-L-A-T-I-N, or, or there's a video online called Carbon Cowboys. Cattle, for example, could be an important part of carbon sequestration. So carbon sequestration is how you take carbon from the atmosphere and store it in plants because guess what? That's what plants do naturally. That's what trees do naturally. They absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They store it in their tissues. They store it in the ground. And the same thing with grasses, if they're allowed to grow properly. Grasses, including the grasses that cattle graze, 
could store carbon underground if they're done properly. Mostly, 99% of the time, that's not done properly. You have to kind of rotate where the cattle are. Uh, you, you, you can't let the cattle graze on the same spot of ground every single day. You have to let them graze for a while in one spot and then use electric fences, portable electric fences, to move them to another spot. And that is called biomimicry in that it mimics what happens in nature. It imitates what happens in nature because, you know, cattle are a naturally occurring phenomenon. So the problem with uh, the environmental problem has nothing to do with the fact that we have cattle. It's how cattle are raised. And environmental problems with chickens have nothing to do with chickens themselves, but it's how chickens are raised. And you could go on. You know, how we raise pigs in these concentrated animal feeding operations, that's the problem. It's not the fact that they're pigs, because pigs occur in nature. But if we want to have uh, environmentally sustainable ways of raising animals, they need to be on smaller farms. They need to be on smaller, more biologically diverse farms. So one thing that brought this up was that Joe Biden, in Biden's climate plan, you can look it up online, uh, Biden's climate plan has a thing or two to say about farming. Biden's climate plan goes as follows. He says, we will partner with farmers and ranchers so that better agricultural practices and deployment of digesters generate new sources of revenues. So by digesters, he's talking about anaerobic digesters. They're these big tanks that are used. So instead of, uh, you know, if you have a big animal feeding operation, instead of trying to spread the manure out in a field, you put it into a digester. And when it, uh, when it decomposes anaerobically, that is without oxygen, when it decomposes anaerobically, then it produces methane. Now, methane is a problematic greenhouse gas unless you burn it. If you burn it, it becomes carbon dioxide. And the idea is that if you burn methane, and uh, then the amount of carbon dioxide it produces is not nearly as problematic. So that's the idea. But the disappointing thing is that Joe Biden's climate plan says almost nothing about farming except saying we're going to promote anaerobic digesters. But in my view, that's a pork barrel deal because anaerobic digesters get to, I mean, they have to be subsidized for one thing. They have to be manufactured. Anything that gets manufactured has a carbon footprint and an ecological footprint. And if you want to read an article that's critical of anaerobic digesters, I suggest you read an article. It's called The Misbegotten Promise of Anaerobic Digesters. Or you can look up anaerobic digesters criticism, and this is the first article that pops up. It's well worth reading. But Biden's climate plan goes on to say, for our family farmers, ranchers, and landowners, the climate agenda is not just about growing nutritious food and making it accessible to all families. It's also about having water they can rely on for growing that food. It's about local farms and fresh food for every community.
and it's about making sure that floodwaters in the Midwest are not taking away family farms that have fed our people for decades. It says here Biden will review regulatory roadblocks, review regulatory roadblocks to new innovations and invest in climate-friendly farming such as conservation programs for cover crops and other practices aimed at restoring the soil and building soil carbon and in the process preventing runoff and helping family farmers deploy the latest technologies to maximize productivity. He will create new opportunities to support deployment of methane digesters to capture potent climate emissions and generate electricity. With these efforts, family farmers can benefit and help lead the clean energy revolution. So the main problem that I have with this is not what it says, but the underlying reality that if, if he is you know, promoting anaerobic digesters, anaerobic digesters are a way of supporting concentrated animal feeding operations. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. Concentrated animal feeding operations are a very bad thing, and Biden is figuring out a way to make them more economical by, you know, using anaerobic digesters to turn cow crap into fuel. And supposedly this makes farming more sustainable, but it does not make farming more sustainable. It only perpetuates a sick system that we're going to study in this um, episode. So I said that CAFOs, or concentrated animal feeding operations, are a very bad thing. Let's look and see what the Michigan Sierra Club has to say about the pollutants that are put out in concentrated animal feeding operations. And then after this, we'll go to something that the EPA has to say about the pros and cons, the costs and benefits of CAFOs, or uh, commercial feedlots. It says the amount of urine, talk about Pollutants produced by CAFOs, the amount of urine and feces produced by the smallest CAFO is equivalent to the quantity of urine and feces produced by 16,000 humans. CAFO waste is usually not treated to reduce disease, causing pathogens, disease-causing pathogens, nor to remove chemicals, pharmaceuticals, heavy metals, or other pollutants. Over 168 gases are emitted from CAFO waste, including hazardous chemicals such as ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, and methane. Airborne particulate matter is found near CAFOs and can carry disease-causing bacteria, fungus, or other pathogens. Animals frequently die in CAFOs. Their carcasses, often in large numbers, must be dealt with. Infestations of flies, rats, and other vermin are commonplace around CAFOs and therefore around CAFO neighbors. So let's get into what the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, has to say about the benefits of CAFOs and then we'll talk about the environmental health effects of CAFOs. So the benefits of CAFOs include, when properly managed and lo located and monitored, CAFOs can produce a low-cost source of meat, milk, and eggs. Due to efficient feeding and housing of animals, increased facility size, and animal specialization. 
When CAFOs are proposed in a local area, it is usually argued that they will enhance the local economy and increase employment. The effects of using local materials, feed, and livestock are argued to ripple throughout the economy, and increased tax expenditures will lead to increased funds for schools and infrastructure. So those are the supposed benefits of CAFOs, or Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations, or what I'm calling commercial feedlots. Now let's look at environmental health effects of CAFOs. They include problems uh, related to groundwater, surface water, air quality, greenhouse gas and climate change, odors, insect vectors, pathogens, antibiotics, and property values. So reading from the EPA's report on CAFOs, it says, the most pressing public health issue associated with CAFOs stems from the amount of manure they produce. CAFO manure contains a variety of potential contaminants. It can contain plant nutrients such as nitrogen and phosphorus, pathogens such as E. coli, growth hormones, antibiotics, chemicals used as additives to the manure or to clean equipment, animal blood, silage leachate from corn feed, or copper sulfate used in foot baths for cows. Depending on the type and number of animals in a farm, manure production can range from between 2,800 tons and 1.6 million tons a year, according to the Government Accountability Office. Large farms can produce more waste than some U.S. cities. A feeding operation with 800,000 pigs could produce over 1.6 million tons of waste a year. That's not 1.6 that it doesn't say 1.6 million pounds of waste. It says 1.6 million tons all in one place. That amount is one and a half times more than the annual sanitary waste produced by the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Annually, it is estimated that livestock animals in the U.S. produce each year somewhere between 3 and 20 times more manure than people in the U.S. produce, or as much as 1.2 to 1.37 billion tons of waste. Billion tons. And it says, though sewage treatment plants are required for human waste, no such treatment facility exists for livestock waste. So there's much, much, much more animal waste, and yet it's not required to be treated. And one of the problems of these CAFOs is that the animal waste is concentrated in one place. This stands in contrast to the reality around a small farm, which is where when animals poop in the pasture, there aren't any problems with a bunch of waste. The pasture just kind of processes it. 
That's biomimicry. That's how things work in nature. And our farms could be used to mimic nature. They could be designed to mimic what happens in nature. And some farms are designed to mimic what happens in nature, but most are not. If you want to you know, see an example of good farming, I recommend that you look up Joel Salatin, S-A-L-A-T-I-N, on YouTube, and he has some great books. Three of them are on audio. For example, Folks, This Ain't Normal is an excellent book. It says here, while manure is valuable to the farming industry, in quantities this large, it becomes problematic. In other words, on a small farm, manure is valuable because it's, that's what you make compost out of. But on a large farm, you can't make compost out of that much crap. So I'm sorry to have to talk so much about crap, but that, you know, we have to, if I'm filling you with a little bit of disgust, that's on purpose. You know, these concentrated animal feeding operations, disgusting as they are, they're out of sight, out of mind. They even have ag gag laws, which prevent people from filming the realities that occur in terms of, you know, the gross, disgusting practices and their impact on the environment and their impact on human health and also animal cruelty. You can't be honest. You can't reveal this stuff. You know, there are ag-gag laws that prevent that stuff. So it says many farms no longer grow their own feed, so they cannot use all the manure they produce as fertilizer. CAFOs must find a way to manage the amount of manure produced by their animals. Ground application of untreated manure is one of the most common disposal methods due to its low cost. It has limitations, however, such as the inability to apply manure while the ground is frozen. There are also limits as to how many nutrients from manure a land area can handle. Overapplication of livestock waste can overload soil with macronutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus and micronutrients that have been added to animal feed like heavy metals. Other manure management strategies include pumping liquefied manure onto spray fields, trucking it off-site, or storing it until it can be used or treated. Manure can be stored in deep pits under the buildings that hold animals in clay or concrete pits, treatment lagoons, or holding ponds. Animal feeding operations are developing in close proximity in some states, and fields where manure is applied have become clustered. When manure is applied too frequently or in too large a quantity to an area, nutrients overwhelm the absorptive capacity of the soil and either run off or are leached into the groundwater. Storage units can break or become faulty, or rainwater can cause holding lagoons to overflow. While CAFOs are required to have permits that limit the levels of manure discharge, handling the large amounts of manure inevitably causes accidental releases which have the ability to potentially impact humans. No doubt. <laughs> the increased clustering and growth 
of CAFOs has led to growing environmental problems in many communities. The excess production of manure and problems with storage or manure management can affect ground and surface water quality. Emissions from degrading manure and livestock digestive processes produce air pollutants that often affect ambient air quality in communities surrounding CAFOs. CAFOs can also be the source of greenhouse gases which contribute to global climate change. All of the environmental problems with CAFOs have direct impact on human health and welfare for communities that contain large industrial farms. As the following sections demonstrate, human health can suffer because of contaminated air and degraded water quality or from diseases spread from farms. Quality of life can suffer because of odors or insect vectors surrounding farms, and property values can drop, affecting the financial stability of a community. One study found that 82.8% of those living near and 89.5% of those living far from CAFOs believed that their property values decreased, and 92% of those living near CAFOs believed the odor from manure was a problem. The study found that real estate values had not dropped and odor infestations were not validated by local government staff in the areas. However, the concerns show that CAFOs remain contentious in communities. CAFOs are an excellent example of how environmental problems can directly impact human and community well-being. So if you're just joining us, we're talking about concentrated animal feeding operations and the environmental problems associated with them. In Hart Hagen's perfect world, there are a number of categories of our economy that we reduce by 90% or elim eliminate completely or radically reform. Concentrated animal feeding operations are one of those things that in my view need to be reduced and need to be eliminated completely. And if we can't eliminate them completely or if people object to eliminating them, them completely, then we need to at least reduce them by 90%. I do believe that meat can be raised sustainably, but concentrated animal feeding operations are not that. They're highly unsustainable. They're you know, one of the worst industries in the world from the standpoint of animal cruelty, from the standpoint of its impact on our climate, from the standpoint of their impact on our air quality and our water quality. And the environmental problems include problems with groundwater, surface water, air quality, greenhouse, glass, greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, odors, insect vectors, pathogens, and antibiotics. So let's talk about problems with groundwater. So groundwater is like when, the, when it rains, the rain soaks into the ground. And in a healthy ecosystem, the rain soaks into the ground and stays there as groundwater. That's why streams and rivers have a constant flow, ideally and water that becomes groundwater eventually flows into our streams and rivers. Therefore, we need to be concerned about the quality of our groundwater. 
It says groundwater can be contaminated by CAFOs through runoff from land application of manure, leaching from manure that has been improperly spread on land, or through leaks or breaks in storage or containment units. The EPA's 2000 National Water Quality Inventory found that 29 states specifically identified animal feeding operations as contributing to water quality impairment. And incidentally, 53% of the population requires on, uh, relies on groundwater for drinking water, often at much higher rates in rural areas. When groundwater is contaminated by pathogenic organisms, a serious threat to drinking water can occur. Pathogens survive longer in groundwater than surface water due to lower temperatures and protection from the sun. Groundwater can still be at risk for contamination after a CAFO has closed and its lagoons are empty. If a CAFO has contaminated a water system, community members should be concerned about nitrates and nitrate poisoning. Elevated nitrates in drinking water can be especially harmful to infants, leading to blue baby syndrome and possible death. Nitrates oxidize iron and hemoglobin in red blood cells, and although most adults can deal with this, infants uh, do not process these chemicals as well as adults do. However, infants are not the only ones that can be affected by excess nitrates in water. Low blood oxygen in adults can lead to birth defects, miscarriages, and poor general health. Nitrates have also been speculated to be linked to uh, higher rates of stomach and esophagus cancer. So I've got just a few minutes left. Let me leave you with some things to think about. One of the most dangerous things that human beings have to deal with is ideology, notably false ideologies. And there are two false ideologies that tend to run the show in America. One is the so-called free market system or the free enterprise system, and the other is American exceptionalism. Let's set aside American exceptionalism for just a minute. The free market or the free enterprise system is an illusion. There is no such thing as a free market. There are always rules, and the rules tend to be set by the plutocrats. So the plutocrats in this case are the owners, you know, big money in the agricultural sector. So big money in the agricultural sector may or may not include farm owners. Typically it does not. Big money usually includes the food monopolies, the food giants like Monsanto and Cargill and Archer Daniels Midland and ConAgra. And the plutocrats also include the banks that lend to the farming operations. There's big money in it. And, you know, big money calls the shots. We have the, gold, you know, the plutocracy. We have the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. So we need to change that. We need to disabuse ourselves of the illusion that there is a free market. We have a plutocracy. The plutocrats get to set the rules and they rig the system in their favor so that they can pollute and pollute and pollute. 
and then we have to pay the consequences, typically through health problems and also through climate change, through climate catastrophe and climate chaos, through the sixth great extinction. These people claim to be delivering us cheap food, but cheap food comes at a price and they're raking in the profits. We need to get away from this plutocracy. We need to get a democracy back if we ever had one. A democracy is where the people are in charge. The people need to be in charge of the agricultural sector as well as anything else. That's all for today. Thank you for joining me. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, and we are on episode number 284. Today's topic is commercial feedlots or CAFOs, that is, concentrated animal feeding operations. Now, CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations are these huge operations that should not exist. They are criminal, so to speak, in terms of their negative impact on our air, our water, our health, on the workers, and on the animals. So they need to be eliminated entirely or at least reduced by 90%. They need to be eliminated entirely. They need to be outlawed. And some people are going to say that, oh, this is how we raise animals efficiently and this is how we provide low-cost food. But low prices, you know, the low low costs and low prices have a high price. We're paying for low prices in terms of our health. And if we find ourselves in a situation where people need to, uh, you know, where people need cheap food, we need to give them more money so they can buy good food. So some people are opposed to the consumption of meat on the grounds that it's bad for the environment and bad for the climate. But I think that is a half truth. I don't think that is entirely true. I think concentrated animal feeding operations, yes, are bad for climate and bad for the environment. But animals can be raised in a way that is humane and is a way, in a way that is good for the environment. But that's another conversation. I will refer you to Joel Salatin, or there's a video called Carbon Cowboys that you can find on YouTube. But concentrated animal feeding operations are problematic in terms of climate, in terms of groundwater, surface water, air quality, greenhouse gases, odors, insect vectors, pathogens, and antibiotics. Last time we looked at groundwater. Now let's look at surface water. It says, I'm reading from a report by the Centers for Disease Control. It says, the agriculture sector, including CAFOs, is the leading contributor of pollutants to lakes, rivers, and reservoirs. 
it says the leading contributor, not a leading contributor. It says, it has been found that states with high concentrations of CAFOs experience on average 20 to 30 serious water quality problems per year as a result of manure management problems. This pollution can be caused by surface discharges or other types of discharges. Surface discharges can be caused by heavy storms or floods that cause storage lagoons to overfill, running off into nearby bodies of water. Pollutants can also travel over land or through surface drainage systems to nearby bodies of water be discharged through the man-made ditches or flushing systems found in CAFOs, or come in contact with surface water that passes directly through the farming area. Soil erosion can contribute to water pollution as some pollutants can bond eroded soil and travel to watersheds. Contamination in surface water can cause nitrates and other nutrients to build up. Ammonia is often found in surface waters through uh, surrounding CAFOs. Ammonia causes oxygen depletion from water, which itself can kill aquatic life. Ammonia also converts into nitrates, which can cause nutrient overloads in surface waters. Nutrient overenrichment causes algal blooms or rapid increases of algae in an aquatic environment. Algal blooms can cause a spiral of environmental problems to an aquatic system. Large groups of algae can block sunlight from underwater plant life, which are habitats for aquatic life. When algae growth increases in surface water, it can also dominate other resources and cause plants to die. The dead plants provide fuel for bacteria to grow, and increased bacteria use more of the water's oxygen supply. Oxygen depletion once again causes indigenous aquatic life to die. Some algal blooms can contain toxic algae and other microorganisms, and this has caused large fish kills in North Carolina, Maryland, and the Chesapeake Bay area. Water tests have also uncovered hormones in surface waters around CAFOs. Studies show that these hormones alter the reproductive habits of aquatic species living in these waters, including a significant decrease in the fertility of female fish. CAFO runoff can also lead to the presence of fecal bacteria or pathogens in surface water. One study showed that protozoa were found in over 80% of surface water sites tested. CAFOs also cause problems in terms of air quality. In addition to polluting, polluting ground and surface water, CAFOs also contribute to the reduction of air quality in areas surrounding industrial farms. Animal feeding operations produce several types of air emissions, including gaseous and particulate substances, and CAFOs produce even more emissions due to their size. The prim primary cause of gaseous emissions is the decomposition of animal manure, while particulate substances are caused by the movement of animals. Sometimes manure is stabilized in anaerobic lagoons, which reduces volatile solids and controls odor before land application. 
The most typical pollutants found in air surrounding CAFOs are ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, methane, and particulate matter, all of which have varying human health risks. It says here, while all community members are at risk from lowered air quality, children take in 20 to 50 percent more air than adults, making them more susceptible to lung disease and health effects. Researchers in North Carolina found that the closer children live to a CAFO, the greater risk of asthma symptoms. So it says here, this is a list of typical pollutants found in air surrounding CAFOs. One, uh, the, one pollutant is ammonia, which is a respiratory irritant, chemi causes chemical burns to the respiratory tract, skin and eyes, severe cough, and chronic lung disease. Other pollutants include hydrogen sulfide, methane, and particulate matter, which uh, cause, you know, the, those cause inflammation of the moist membranes of the eye and respiratory tract, olfactory neuron loss, and death. Hydrogen sulfide can cause death. Methane uh, has no health risk, but is a greenhouse gas and contributes to climate change. Particulate matter causes chronic bronchitis, chronic respiratory symptoms, declines in lung function, and organic dust toxic syndrome. There is consistent evidence suggesting that factory farms increase asthma in neighboring communities as indicated by children having higher rates of asthma. CAFOs emit particulate matter and suspend dust, which is linked to asthma and bronchitis. Smaller particles can actually be absorbed by the body and can have systemic effects, including cardiac arrest. If people are exposed to particulate matter over a long time, it can lead to decreased lung function. CAFOs also emit ammonia which is rapidly absorbed by the upper airways of the body. This can cause severe coughing and mucus buildup, and if severe enough, it can cause scarring of the airwaves. Particulate matter is of particular consequence to farm workers. Farm workers can develop acute and chronic bronchitis, chronic obstructive airways disease, and interstitial lung disease. Repeated exposure to CAFO emissions can increase the likelihood of respiratory diseases. Occupational asthma, acute and chronic bronchitis, and organic dust toxic syndrome can be as high as 30% in factory farm workers. Other health effects of CAFO air emissions can be headaches, respiratory problems, eye irritation, nausea, weakness, and chest tightness. There is evidence that CAFOs affect the ambient air quality of a community. There are three laws that potentially govern CAFO air emissions. However, the EPA passed a rule that exempts all CAFOs from reporting emissions. The EPA has also instituted a voluntary air quality compliance agreement in which they will monitor some CAFO air emissions and will not sue offenders, but instead charge a small civil penalty. Now let's talk about the greenhouse gas issues associated with CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations. 
It says, aside from the possibility of lowering air quality in the areas around them, CAFOs also emit greenhouse gases and therefore contribute to climate change. Globally, livestock operations are responsible for approximately 18% of greenhouse gas production and over 7% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. While carbon dioxide is often considered the primary greenhouse gas of concern, manure emits methane and nitrous oxide, which are 23 and 300 times more potent as greenhouse gases than carbon dioxide, respectively. In other words, methane is 23 times more potent than greenhouse than uh, carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, and nitrous oxide is 300 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. The EPA attributes manure management as the fourth leading source of nitrous oxide emissions and the fifth leading source of methane emissions. The type of manure storage system used contributes to the production of greenhouse gases. Many CAFOs store their excess manure in the lagoons or pits where they break down anaerobically, which means in the absence of oxygen, and this exacerbates methane production. Now, if you apply manure to the land or the soil, it has more exposure to the air and, and gets more oxygen and therefore doesn't produce as much methane. But when you do that, it's more vulnerable to being you know, found in the runoff it, you know, it's going to get caught by the rain and flow into our water supply. It says here, ruminant livestock such as cows, sheep, or goats also contribute to methane production through their digestive processes. These livestock have a special stomach called a rumen that allows them to digest tough grains or plants that would otherwise be unusable. It is during this process called enteric fermentation that methane is produced. The U.S. cattle industry is one of the primary methane producers. Now, this is where CAFOs are different from pasture-fed beef. If you, give, if you feed corn or soybeans to cattle, they're not made to eat corn or soybeans. They're made to eat grass. And when they do eat corn or soybeans, then that produces much more methane than they produce if they are grass-fed. That's why, in my opinion, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't want to say some ways of raising animals for meat are bad, therefore all ways of raising animals for meat are bad. The latter does not follow from the former. Just because some methods of, meat, of animal raising for meat are bad doesn't mean they all are. Now, one of the most common complaints associated with CAFOs is the, orders that, is the odors that they produce. This is a complex mixture of ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, carbon dioxide, as well as volatile and semi-volatile organic compounds. So volatile organic compounds include methane. It says the odors that CAFOs produce are worse than odors formerly associated with smaller livestock farms. 
And this odor comes primarily from the anaerobic way that, it, that the manure decomposes. If manure decomposes in, a, in an aerobic fashion, when it's exposed to the air, then it's not going to smell as much. It's also much healthier for the climate, the air, and the water, and human health. So this is a report from the CDC Centers for Disease Control and it's talking about select pathogens found in animal manure. One of them is uh, it causes the disease, it causes anthrax, which causes skin sores, headache, fever, chills, nausea, vomiting. One is E. coli, which causes diarrhea and abdominal gas. One causes a disease called lepto spirosis, which causes abdominal pain, muscle pain, vomiting, and fever. One of them causes listerosis, which causes fever, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. One is called salmonellus, salmonellosis, you know, salmonella, causes abdominal pain, uh, diarrhea, nausea, chills, fever, and headache. One is tetanus, which causes violent muscle spasms, locked jaw, and difficulty breathing. Histoplasmosis, fever, chills, muscle ache, cough, rash, joint pain, and stiffness, ringworm, which includes itching and a rash, giardiasis, which causes diarrhea, abdominal pain, abdominal gas, nausea, vomiting, and fever, and cryptosporidosis, which causes diarrhea, dehydration, weakness, and abdominal cramping. So those are all the pathogens. Those are all the diseases that can be caused by pathogens in manure. But these pathogens are not, you know, this is not going to be nearly as bad in, on a smaller farm because on a smaller farm, you're going to have biodiversity or biological diversity. On a bigger farm, which raises one type of animal, uh, that's a prescription for the spread of disease. And that's why they have to feel like they have to pump these animals full of antibiotics. They're going to pump them full of antibiotics whether they're sick or not. Because if not, because uh, if they get one animal gets sick, then they all get sick. That's the downside of a concentrated animal feeding operation. One of the many downsides. So we've been talking about concentrated animal feeding operations, which are bad news in a lot of ways, which would be irrelevant if there weren't an alternative, but there is an alternative. And the alternative has to do with what might be called regenerative farming or regenerative agriculture. So let's look at some of the elements and characteristics of regenerative agriculture. Generally, we're talking about smaller farms. That's why in this country we need land reform. We need a, a way of acquiring land from the big huge farmers and giving it or you know transferring it on favorable terms to smaller farmers. And we can do that in a way that is fair to everybody but the last thing that we need is to continue with these huge farms of thousands of acres. Even a few hundred acres is more than most families and individuals can manage. If it's more than one or two hundred acres, 
most people can't manage that in a way that is sustainable. So we need smaller farms. Let's talk about some of the uh, elements of regenerative farming, which means smaller farms. You're going to focus on people, on people food. Uh, you're going to, it's going to be biologically diverse. You're going to have trees and woody plants. Um, and you're going to go along with the natural cycles. There's going to be more biomimicry, biomimicry. So let's dig into each one of these. A focus on people food. So farms should be growing food. Farms should not be growing a whole lot of animal food because uh, when we feed grain to animals, for example, that is a historical accident that is made possible by cheap oil. Cheap oil is a historical accident and we and it's not going to last forever and just because oil is cheap at the pump uh, does not mean that it's cheap for society because you have all these external costs, these costs that are not counted. So oil is not going to be cheap forever. In fact, oil is already very expensive if you look at the true cost of oil. So we need to stop farming as if oil is cheap because it's not. So regenerative farming is going to focus on growing food for people, not animals. And uh, you know, whereas industrial agriculture is going to grow foreign, uh, corn for high fructose corn syrup, it's going to go grow corn for ethanol, and it's going to grow sugar for ethanol, and it's going to grow soybeans for the you know to get the lecithin from the soybeans. Lecithin is a food additive that increases the shelf life of chocolate, for example, but it's not a really good use of our farmland. Another byproduct of growing lots and lots and lots of corn and soybeans is that corn and soybeans are typically genetically modified. They are Roundup ready, which means that you can spray herbicides on them, which leaves trace amounts of Roundup in the food and also, at least as important, it kills off the wildflowers that the pollinators depend on. Genetically modified corn and soybeans are bad news largely because they require the heavy application of herbicides like Roundup. So we're comparing regenerative farming or small farming with these big industrial operations. And another difference is that industrial farming involves monocultures, whereas small regenerative farms are biologically diverse. So when a, a farm is small and biologically diverse, that's good for nutrients. That means more nutritious food is being grown when it's in an environment that's biologically diverse. When you have several different kinds of vegetables, when you have trees, uh, and several different kinds of trees, when you have several different kinds of animals, then the, the plants are taking in uh, a richer supply of nutrients and the animals are taking in a richer supply of nutrients so that when we eat the meat or when we eat the 
uh, plant material, there's more, it's, it's more nutritious. It makes us healthier. So biologically diverse farms are good for nutrition. Biologically diverse farms are good for disease control. So, you know, when you have a diverse set of animals, then the pathogens get confused. They don't jump from one. Most pathogens are specific to a species. So they're going to jump from individual to individual to individual within a species, but then they, when they find an individual of another species, they can't live on that. So biologically diverse farms are good in preventing the spread of disease. They're also good for pest control because if you have the monoculture farm, the you know genetically modified corn as far as the eye can see, then you have to apply chemical pesticides if you're going to keep the pests out. Whereas biologically diverse farms, nature provides your pest control. If you want to kill the prey, then you've killed the predator. If you want to kill the insects that a bird eats, then you're not going to have that bird anymore to eat the insects. So, uh, you know, biologically diverse farms are good for pest control. Another good thing about regenerative farming is that you're going to have more trees and woody plants. You're going to have more, you know, if a farm has only annual plants, then it's not going to absorb uh, any carbon to speak of. Trees absorb carbon because they grow year to year to year. They're also more efficient if you have a diversity. If you have, you know, you have your annual plants, but you also have your bushes and you have your small trees and your tall trees, then that scenario is going to absorb more sunlight so that there's more photosynthesis, so that there's more carbon being absorbed by the plants and stored into the soil. We could be doing our farming in a way that absorbs carbon, but your big, huge farms are not going to do that. Your big, huge farms are not going to be something that can absorb carbon. But your smaller farms are going to have your wooded areas. They're also going to have orchards. They're also going to have a diversity of things like, you know, you're going to have blackberries. You're going to have blueberries. You're going to have uh, fruit orchards. You're going to have, uh, you know, walnuts and hazelnuts and chestnuts. You know, not all these things, but you're going to have a variety uh, which includes trees and woody plants which make better use of the sunlight and which absorb carbon and store it in the soil. We need that kind of farming. We don't need the kind of farming that plows up the soil every year and releases all that carbon into the atmosphere and then fails to reabsorb the carbon back into the ground and back into the plants and back into the ground. Another good thing about small regenerative farming is that it's going to take advantage of natural cycles. A small regenerative farming is going to be able to compost the manure. A small regenerative farming farm is going to be more likely to have 
cattle and chickens. Those are two complementary species. The chicken can go behind the cattle and pick up the seeds and, and scratch the soil and work the manure into the soil. It's very good for the soil and the grass. So you can do that kind of thing on a small, biologically diverse farm. But none of that happens on a concentrated animal feeding operation. I've got another minute or two left. Let me leave you with some things to think about. So we have a mythology in our country that is the free enterprise system, the free market system. Uh, and the, the idea there is that, you know, laissez-faire, government should leave the, leave the business alone and let it do whatever it wants to do. And that includes letting it grow as big as it can possibly grow. So, you know, we have problems with monopolies in this country because we've forgotten that when you let companies get too big, then that's bad for competition. That's bad for anything remotely resembling a free enterprise system. And it's also bad for something called externalities, which is where a company gets to shift its costs onto the public. We've all these disgusting things about concentrated animal feeding operations represent externalities. That's where a company gets to shift its cost onto us in the form of environmental problems and health problems. And we get, need to get away from this notion that bigger is always better. Bigger is not always better. In fact, when it comes to businesses, quite often bigger is the worst thing. We need to split up these companies. We need to limit their size. And that's all I have to say about that. Please email me at info at theclimatereport.net if you have any questions, comments, or observations. Thank you for joining me. Hope you have a great day.